to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined as always by the playa, Benny Scala. Benny, it's election day, and I voted personally for best co-host to do 150 episodes with. You guess who I wrote in on that ballot? I'm hoping me. So, yeah, 150 episodes. Who'd have thunk it? So here's my question to you, Dan. Does this mean that I finally get that raise? Because I'd really like to upgrade from bologna to Taylor Ham. Benny, what did I tell you? You call it anything but pork roll on this show, and you're fired. Uh, <laughs> Live or worse. How about that? Just, not, <laughs> okay. just no more bologna. I, no, no, absolutely not. I, I spent enough years working at an Italian deli. I'll never touch liverwurst again. <laughs> uh, but you'll you'll get that raise, Benny. You'll get you'll get two hot dogs a week now. Okay, that's and, fair uh, enough. Nothing, can, but, the, nothing but the finest, the finest Jimmy John's coupons. All right. But no, all, all jokes aside, Benny, like I said, episode 150, we've been doing this for coming up on three years now. Who would have thought this is great stuff? And I mean, when we did our, our 100 episode special, we had a great guest that we've been looking forward to for months. 150, we've got ourselves another great guest that we've been looking forward to for months since we've been talking about this. Benny, why don't you tell everybody what star we have on the line with us this evening? We spare no expense for our, for our listeners and our viewers. So uh, this guest is arguably one of the last great wrestlers of the territory area, although he did have his time in the big show as well. Uh, from right here in my own backyard of Tampa Bay, Florida, the one and only Steve Kern. Steve, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we, we appreciate it. This is awesome. Benny and I are a little far apart in age. He's just a few months older than I am. I think it is Benny. Um, yeah, like uh, 300 maybe, <laughs> but it's, it's great because, you know, we, two different eras of wrestling and we both, we both watched you and, and that's just a testament to your career. Uh, I, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you. This is great stuff. Well, thank you. I'm humbled. I mean, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to be on. I mean, let's get right into it, Steve. We, we ask this question of everybody. The answer is always different. We love the answer. Uh, when did the wrestling bug bite you? Uh, who got you involved, kind of? And do you remember your first wrestling memory as a fan? Um, my first wrestling memory as a fan, um, I'm from a military family. My dad was United States Air Force, and we moved around um, the first part of my life. And we had moved... From Okinawa, we lived. I lived on Okinawa, and we moved to North Carolina. And in North Carolina, we were in a, a small town called Goldsboro, and the Air Force base was Seymour Johnson. And my first opportunity to see pro wrestling was there. And I saw, I guess it was Crockett Promotions. I didn't remember that much about it. The only thing I really remembered was a heel there, and I think his name was Rip Hawk. Oh, yeah. And it caught my attention. I mean, you know, I was only like in the fifth grade. So, 
and I had been subjected to being on a on an island over in Okinawa where the TV came on at four and went off at eight, and it really didn't have wrestling. And before that, you know, then I was younger and wasn't really paying attention to TV. So I, when we moved to Tampa down here and where I'm at now, my dad got stationed at McDill. I really got into it, but that was, it was, you know, more dominant here. I mean, it was on Saturday night and it was on Sunday. And Saturday night, the opposition was um, hee-haw. And, <laughs> you know, I, I hadn't been around Dusty and Terry Funk and uh, all the cowboy influences that later on came with country music and country stuff. So I really wasn't a fan of hee-haw. So wrestling was the deal. And then Sunday... It came on at one o'clock here with Gordon Soley, and it was one um, I think it was a repeat show, but anyway, it, the opposition then was Meet the Press. So you know, it, it yes, was pretty dominant. It was only it was only three channels, so that's my first time to witness it. Well, okay, and when did the bug hit me? That was the second part of that question. Yeah, the bug didn't the bug didn't hit me right away, and I'll tell you why. It's part of the story. My The bug, my dad, um, being in the Air Force and everything, and us him being stationed at McDill, um, <clears throat> he was a fighter pilot. got shot down in Vietnam, and he was a POW from the time I was 13 to 21. Well, I was in junior high when he was shot down. <clears throat> then, when I went to high school, two junior highs down here in South Campus, the very southern tip of Tampa, it's called Port Tampa, they combined, and it was a high school called Robinson High School, and I met Mike Graham in the 10th grade and became really close friends with him. Um, he had gone to the other junior high, so I can't say I knew him as long, but as I knew some of the other guys, like Hulk Hogan and I went to high school from junior high and elementary and right on into high school, but with Mike, I met him in the 10th grade, and my dad was a prisoner at the time, and just sitting conversation-wise, you know, he got interested, took me to meet his dad. His dad was a real patriot, Eddie, and Eddie was real compassionate towards me and, you know, offered me opportunities. And so he offered me the opportunity when I turned 16, I, I was started driving. He offered me opportunity, my first job to be a counselor out in this youth camp that was a summer camp for kids in North Tampa on a lake. And I'd stay out there for three months and kind of babysit more than anything. And then my second part of my job was picking up wrestlers when they flew into Tampa. And I met guys like Bill Watts and the Funks and all of those guys in my early life. And I drove them around and I drove them to the matches. I drove them to their hotels and things like that. But this was a very strict kayfabe territory. So nobody really talked to you about the wrestling business. And I was smart enough not to ask questions about wrestling. You know, I just, I liked the guys were always friendly to me. And because they knew my dad was, you know, a POW, they were, you know, even more friendly. I mean, you know, they're very compassionate and generous too. They gave me money and stuff. And so I really admired them, but you know, we looked beat up and, you know, they get in a car with me after the matches and they'd done get gig marks and blade jobs and their heads are bleeding. They got tape all over their head. And I'm, I mean, there wasn't a real desire to be a pro wrestler. I mean, you know, 
I was really cute when I was young and I didn't really want to mess my face up. So I really didn't have that desire, not to mention, and I know this is dragging it out, but I'm going to tell you the whole thing. I, I oh, wasn't yeah. doing, doing much in athletics. When my dad got shot down, I was dragged down the hall by a colonel um, the very first day. And he told me, he sat me down on my bed and he said, son, your, di- your dad died today in Vietnam. He was shot down with the first SAM missile ever used in the war and his F-4 exploded and he's dead. And I broke out crying and the guy grabbed me, snatched me a little bit. And he says, son, listen, your dad wouldn't be proud of you being a baby. He said, you're the man of the family now. And you've got to be the man of the family the rest of your life because if there's nobody else for your mom and your sister. And so it kind of like was a scary deal. And I thought being the man of the family, you know, at 13, I thought, well, that means I got to go to work. Well, I quit all athletics. I'd played football and basketball through junior high and had planned to do it in high school, but I, I didn't. I, I just decided I'm going to go in and get a job. And I started working on the Air Force base at the officer's club, bussing tables and doing things, you know, trying to bring home a check. So the admiration for the wrestlers was there, but not the inspiration. <laughs> I mean, you know, and when it came time, I was only like 165 pounds when I graduated from high school. And I know that'll get you a top job right now, as long as you could do backflips. But right. <laughs> in my in my era, that didn't even get you noticed. I mean, you know, and so it wasn't part of my program. I went away to college. Uh, Eddie used to advise me and I asked him, you know, what do I do? I'm graduating from high school and I don't know what I want to be yet. I, you know, I ain't figured it out. And Eddie wasn't pushing wrestling on me. He just said, well, what does your mom want you to do? And I said, my mom wants me to be the first one in my family to get a college education. So off to college, I went and I had no idea. And they said, what do you want to be? And I said, well, I want to be rich. Okay, what does that mean? He said, well, what, who gets rich? Doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, whatever. I said, well, I think I'll be a doctor then. And I thought you just picked out, you know, what you wanted to be. I didn't know you had to have prerequisites and all this planning. And so when I went to college, I signed up for pre-med and all the courses I went to were like, like a foreign language. I'm going like, man, I don't know nothing about, I mean, I just dropped course after course, but I did get interested. I went to a college where my friend Ted DiBiase lives. It's in Clinton, Mississippi. It's right outside of Jackson to the West of Jackson a little bit. Anyway, I was in the college right there, Mississippi college. And really was getting bored with college. I mean, and, uh, it's like I had no business there. It's wasting money, just just being in school. So I started going to the YMCA and I started powerlifting. And I got hooked up with these police officers in, in Jackson, and they were on steroids. And they introduced me to my first steroids. And I was right at 18 years old, I guess. And he, you know, gave me, uh, they got me this pill called Dianabol. And... <clears throat> They weren't injections, they were just pills, and I just started taking. Well, it checked me up. In the when I came home from the time I got there in September to Thanksgiving, I'd gone up to 240. Wow. And oh, wow. I was I was so strong and powerful, but I mean, you know, I didn't look good. I looked like I didn't have any more cuts on my body than an M M&M. and M. I was just a big round kid, but I was strong and huge. And, and when I got off the plane, my mom didn't recognize me, you know, I mean, you know, I walked right by her. And 
So Mike got married. And when Mike got married, I was part of his wedding. So I had to get a tuxedo. Well, when I show up, Eddie hadn't seen me. Now he sees me at 240. He's looking at me. He's going, oh, man, what happened to you? And I think, you know, I told him I got into powerlifting. So anyway, he goes, asked me how college was going. And I told him, well, it isn't really going good for me, but it, you know, it's my fault. I don't, I never really paid attention in college, uh, high school. So long story short, I was in Mike's wedding, college went back, tried to get through it. Won a couple of years, nothing happened. Came back, Eddie looks at me, says, well, what are you going to do now? And I go, I don't know, I'm lost. You know, I don't want to be a construction worker the rest of my life. So he says, well, how about wrestling? And I'm going, man, I don't want to get beat up. I mean, you know, so far as what everybody else saw, I saw something on the inside that was reality. I mean, you know, everybody around me is going, well, wrestling's all fake. And I'm going, yeah, that's what I thought too. But man, you should see these guys' faces. And so... Anyway, it started, and I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. So that's how it got started. Kind of a long roundabout way, but that's exactly the truth of how I got started. And it wasn't a fantasy of, oh, man, I'm, I watched wrestling, and I absorbed it, and I sucked it up, and I was going to be a wrestler, and I practiced interviews. The only thing I maybe practiced was in my front yard. We have a real thick grass in Florida called St. Augustine. It's like a sponge. And I practice, you know, in the front yard, sunset flips on people in the neighborhood and figure four, things like that, just like any kids would do. But never really was motivated to follow in the footsteps of a pro wrestler. So, right. Anyway. Steve, um, now I've always held, even though I grew up in New York, you know, at, at later years, I guess it was probably about 76, we got cable vision. And I started getting uh, championship wrestling from Florida. And to me, it opened up a whole new world. Now you have Gordon Soley, you got Dusty Rhodes, Kevin Sullivan, Bob Roop, all these guys, you, <laughs> Mike Graham. Um, what was it, were you, I, I guess, from be before you became a wrestler, were you a regular at the uh, the Tuesday night matches at the Homer Hesterly? And I, I want to try to like point out to people, like you know, now in Tampa, I think it's Amelie where they, they, they WWE comes. They might be there on a good year, twice a year. But at the home right. actually, you could go 52 times a year and see great wrestling. Were you a, a regular there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every Tuesday night. I mean, when I first started, you know, I was so green that I really sucked really bad. And just like anybody else first started, they had two opportunities on Tuesday night. And one of them is you'd wrestle in Fort Myers at some little crappy armory that about 30 people would gather together to watch and they put all the lame guys from the the group down there and i was on that for probably six months i mean when i very first started i mean eddie put me in in there as a ring announcer for about a month just to get used to going out in front of people and then he jacked me up to a referee and that's when they, you know, I had to go through and get trained before I was a referee because I wasn't smart as a ring announcer. I wasn't allowed in the dressing room part. They'd just give me little index cards and tell me, go out there and announce the guys. You know, and that, I mean, that wasn't really that difficult. Although me giving a book report in high school, I never read a book to begin with. And when I'd try to give one, I'd looked at my seat the whole time. 
and I, you know, pretty much go, uh, well, my book, and now I'm up in front of an audience. So it's just an introduction. Anyway. Did I lose you guys? No, nope. no, you're good. We're just listening to the story. Yeah, great stuff. Okay, yeah, okay, great okay. Stuff. yeah. I, I don't want to keep. I don't want to ramble on on you. I know I got questions, so I, you know, I'm going to try to keep it to a no, no, minimum. But, but I'm mean, a talker. I mean, when when I tell you something, I don't want to just give you. Oh uh, yeah, I started um, one day. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm gonna tell no, you. No, we want to hear happened. the real stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we're here to talk to you, so feel free to tell us okay. as much as you want. Okay. Well, I'm kind of hoping you, you could expand a little bit because you, you talked about you got into wrestling and, and clearly, like you said, it was not we hate to use the F word on the show, but it's not fake. You, you were trained at this point, you know, Eddie Graham, uh, Hiro Matsuda. And we we've taught we've had the pleasure of talking to people who have trained with him. Uh, and, you know, obviously that one of our favorite shows was the familial connection. Um, legendary no-nonsense trainer as as he said he'd quickly separate the wheat from the chaff um, it we and then we've heard Travis Orndorf uh, Paul's son talk about how grueling the sessions were can you kind of elaborate on that at having Matsuda come up on the show as much as as he has uh, what was it like training yeah. under him well it was like a Japanese guy that must have got bombed in Pearl Harbor and he was going to take it out on every round eye american that came in there wanting to be a wrestler <laughs> nah i'm just kidding he was he was just a strict you know athletic he didn't ask you to do something he didn't do he did it right there with you but you know when the the sportatorium is where we were trained the sportatorium to me was like a microwave oven it was a concrete block building that was you know maybe 2,000 square feet because they had the ring and the studio set up in the back, but it had two doors, one exit door and one fire escape. It had zero windows and no air conditioning. And when you turn the ring light on, that added another 150 degrees to the room. But it was so hot in there, it was so miserable, and you really couldn't breathe. There was no, no ventilation, nothing. And I had witnessed because of the fact that I wasn't smart, I was still allowed to go to some stretching sessions with Mike um, before I ever even thought about wrestling. And that was another thing that deterred me because I saw guys that came there and signed releases that wanted to be wrestlers. And then I witnessed them getting the shit beat out of them. And I don't mean any wrestling moves. I mean, just beat them to uh, unbelievable. They would try to escape and chase them all over in the building. And Eddie put a double chain around the exit door so nobody could escape. <laughs> and, and I saw some of the most violent things I'd ever seen. You know, TV wasn't that strong back then. You know, you've got to remember what I'm watching. It's 1972 on TV and what my access to real violence was. My action hero was Clint Eastwood. He may have shot one guy in the movie and beat up two or three. He wasn't like Keanu Reeves, you know, John Wick. So the violence thing, man, he, I mean, I witnessed some things that made my stomach turn and it also scared the piss out of me that, you know, it's like, I don't want nothing to do with these guys. <laughs> and then 
later on, here I am, and I'm thinking, well, I'm pretty big, and I always kind of thought I was pretty tough. I mean, you know, I grew up in a, a tough part of the city, and I was in a gang, and I'm, we were, you know, getting fights all the time, but it was all just sucker punches and a few things and I break it up and all this. I mean, it never was nothing like what I'm witnessing. So when they said, well, okay, first day. So I'm thinking now first day I'm going to get my ass kicked, but it was all, it was all pretty complimentary so far as, I mean, when I got in there, we started off with squats. Okay. Free squats. And what we use is a deck of cards and Matt Suda flipped the card and you did whatever came up i mean you know the aces and the face card face cards 10 the aces were like 11 i think anyway so it wasn't one which i would always pray for but you do these squats now you've done a whole deck of cards of squat now next thing you do is you do neck bridges well you know growing up and going to high school be a power you didn't really do neck bridges you know for activity so that was pretty tough for a while and then push-ups and never even hit the ropes didn't even hit the ropes anyway then you'd start wrestling well i had an older sister at the time a couple years older she was bigger than me but she wasn't tougher than me but she could have whooped my ass by the time i was done with the exercises i mean and i could couldn't even lift my arms and it would you know i didn't have an amateur wrestling background so I wasn't a threat to Matt Suter or Bob Roop or Jack Briscoe, whoever decided they had to stretch me, but they just, they just stretched me. I mean, they took me down, you know, when I tried it, they, you know, they made me fight, keep fighting kid, keep fighting kid, keep fighting kid. And I'd fight, but I was going nowhere. And I got my face rubbed in the mat a lot, my elbows. I'd come home to my mom and I'd have mat burns on my cheeks, my forehead, my ears would be swollen, my my elbows would have mat burns on them, my knees, and my mom would look at me and she'd go, honey, I thought wrestling was fake. <laughs> I looked at my <laughs> mom, and I'm going to my mom, I want to punch my mom already, right? The way I was being brainwashed, and I'm going, mom, so did I. But this, what I got on my face, this is for real, yeah. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> So here's the deal. Nobody punched me in the face. Nobody tried to do anything to physically hurt me. The story goes Hulk Hogan got his leg broke. Well, there was a big argument on Dark Side. We did an episode with five of us not too long ago. And Jerry Briscoe called out Brian Blair because Brian Blair was saying, yeah, he got his leg broke. He didn't get his leg broke. He tore something or he got it to the point where he wouldn't tap out for Matt Suda. Well, we didn't have tap out back then. We had, I quit. Right. <laughs> or, or stop, <laughs> please. I mean, there was no tap out. No, I mean, had that, that that'd have been easier. But anyway, Hogan didn't get his leg broke, but he did get damaged pretty bad. But that was because that he was showing how tough he was. He didn't want to quit. Well, me, on the other hand, if you, if Matt Suda or somebody put me in a, position like uh, pressure on Mike or everything you could hear me probably in South Tampa from where we were at I mean you know I'd be hollering I quit that hurts don't break my leg but so that went on for I want to say close to three months and it didn't let up it was the same thing grind 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 
And I know we had a couple of days off, and it was probably due to TV taping on the Wednesdays. We had TV taping at the Sportatorium, and they had interviews after it. So I'm sure we were absent then, but probably five days a week we do this. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Eddie Graham comes in one day during a stretching session, and he pulls me aside, and he said, well, I guess it's time to teach you how to work now, kid. And I said, what? And he said, that's time to teach you how to work. What we do here is we instill how important it is to protect our business. And if you can make it through what you've made it through and not quit, then that means you got heart. And the heart that you got means that you'll protect the business knowing it involves the people that you're around and their livelihood. And so I still was totally in the dark, what was talking about and everything. But, you know, it's like, like I got used to later on in life, just shake my head when a promoter says, this is good. I'm going, yeah, okay. But anyway, Eddie's telling me all this stuff. And so he gets me in the ring and the very first thing he does with me starts teaching me how to lock up and then push me around and he pushes me into the corner and he tells me, okay, break. And when he tells me to break, now I just turn loose and I put my arms down and he takes his hand and he grabs me by the throat and he hooks my throat and I'm standing there and he's not putting any pressure on it. He just grabs my throat and he says, okay, react to this. How would you react? So I start waving my hands over my head like, ah, and he crunched me. I mean, he squeezed my Adam's apple, and that's when my voice changed from a soprano to what it is now. And <laughs> he just buried his fist in my And I grabbed his hand and started clawing his hand, pulling his hand off of my throat. And he's going, kid, that's what we call selling. Keep it up. <clears throat> I mean, he's choking me out. And so anyway, then he, it, made, it kind of like made sense. Okay, at first I couldn't feel it, but when I could feel it, what did I do? So if you watch wrestling like I do, been 44 years of every, every facet of it, when I watch it on television and things like that, I always think of all these old lessons I learned. I'll watch guys in holes and they're waving. <laughs> you know, they're like, whoa, I'm in the sleeper. And they got their arms up in the air like they're waving at the whole audience. You know what I mean? If, if I put the sleeper on you for real, you're going to grab my forearm for sure, just trying to pull some air in. But anyway, it's just part of it. And then, so then he started showing me other moves. And then Mike was already working a little bit. And, and Dick Slater, who also went to high school with me, and, and Mike and Dickie came down there. And we all three got in there. And they started teaching me how to do tackles, where you hit the ropes and come off. Well, first thing is, is hitting the ropes, because at that time, that was always my favorite to teach. I mean, because everybody would think of all the different things that hurt them, but I would tell them, says, boy, you got a real wake-up call. Wait till you hit these ropes. And they're all looking at, oh, that's nothing. But a rope back then was an 18 by 18. It was three-quarter inch cable wrapped with a garden hose and pulled to the tightest tension it could get and strapped into a turnbuckle. And when you threw your body weight against it, you're hitting something that never gets hit. You're underarm to your hip. And nobody ever gets whacked there. And then you're coming off, you know, and you're throwing your body weight. And it's a timing, it's a footage, it's, 
it's the pain of hitting and adjusting and all of that and absolutely making sure you've got your right arm over the top rope because if it ain't, you're going to be like a banana. You're going to go through the top in a second and get squished and go right straight to the floor. Well, I started learning those and the very first time I hit my grand with a tackle, I, I had my head down and I we rammed heads and I gave him the best black eye he ever had. Matter of fact, they used it as part of an angle later on there in Tampa because if he had that black eye. Whenever there was damage on guys, that was an angle. <laughs> you know, it might have been an accident at first, but yeah, you worked it in like, there. Yeah, you worked it in there. Hey, what's wrong with Mike's eye? I don't know, but get him over there and do an interview with Gordon. Anyway, so you know, that started, and then next was just doing shows, small shows, first matches. My first match was against Chris Markoff in Arcadia at an armory. It was about six minutes long, and he bitched the whole time we were in there. Slow down, speed up, do this, do that. I mean, you know, by the time we left there, you know, I really wasn't a big fan of his to begin with, and then, you know, it just got worse every night I had to work with I was working with guys old enough to be my grandpa. And that wow. was my very my very first lesson in wrestling was, is I ain't gonna be an old wrestler. I'd already made up my mind. I'm wrestling these guys, their tights don't fit, you know, their pecs look like tits. I mean, you know, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you still doing this, man? You're like 70. Your name Flair? No. no. I was gonna say, you just reminded me of Ric Flair. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to brutalize Rick. He's all right, but he's not my idol. Anyway, so the idea was, is I just decided, you know what? No matter what, if I do this, I'm not going to be an old wrestler. So I held my guns to that too later on in life, except for one time John Lair and I just waved the bone in front of my face for a Legends Battle Royal when I was an agent. And he said, I want you to be Skinner. And they go, no way, I quit. I don't wrestle. <laughs> I don't get out there no more. But he wrote down a figure on a piece of paper. And he goes, for that, you will? And I said, I'm going to go one more time. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> but I, it, was a, it, it was a race between me and Bob Backlund and uh, Sergeant Slaughter and some of the old timers in there in that Legends battle wall to get out, not stay in. <laughs> well, We're trying to figure out. Move, duck, anything just to throw us out. I mean, me and Bobby Backlund were fighting each other not to stay in, but to get out. Throw me out. If, no, you throw me out. Anyway. If, if I remember correctly, weren't you like one of the last two or three in that match? Yeah, because I'm not the brightest guy when it comes to older guys. When I'm in a group of my peers of my age, most of them are smarter than me, and they trick me in the ring. Oh. But but it wasn't until later that I I became a genius in the ring. And, you know, it didn't matter about size. Like when I'd work with the Road Warriors and outsmart them, you know, it was the idea that you're smarter than them. But when I get around Sergeant Slaughter and guys like that, I mean, you know, I thought for sure I was going to be the first one out of that ring. And next, next thing I know, I turn around and everybody's bailed. And now I'm down to about two or three and, I'm not sure if they're able to throw me out. They're older than me. So, yeah, you're right. I was so blowed up when I came out of there. They even told me when I come in the back, they met me at the gorilla position and said, man, you blowed up. I said, yeah, I had no business out there, number one. And number two, I thought I was supposed to be out third. <laughs> so, And number three, where's my payoff, right? 
right? No, I, no, that, I never had to worry about that with that company. That's oh, yeah. one thing I can I can say about that company, WWF and WWE, first class. I mean, you know, first class, and you always you stayed in the greatest hotels. You flew, you know. I've led a life that was, you know, a miracle, number one, to have been part of. And then plus the way I was treated, young people now, they they see things different and they bitch and complain, you know, and it's like, I mean, I can remember when I started and I can remember driving seven nights a week we wrestled in Florida. Yeah. Most of the 70s you spent on the East Coast uh, between Florida, Georgia, maybe in Gulf Coast. You picked up a boatload of titles, mostly as tag team, but you did win the uh, the Florida and Georgia heavyweight championships, which back in the day were very prestigious territory titles, as well as the uh, NWA a version of the NWA World Junior um, Heavyweight Championship. Did you prefer to work as part of a team, or, or was that just how you were booked? Well, here goes that fantasy wrestler kind of thing away again, because I'm a real realist. I figured out, I mean, I worked some uh, mostly singles. I mean, I did have Ricky Gibson as a partner. My very first partner was Stan Hansen. I mean, wow. we were funny. I, I want to tell a real quick Stan Hansen story because it, we're both, we're almost equal in size at the time, if you can imagine that. And I had an apartment and Stan and I would hang out a lot and stuff. And we even practiced blade jobs in my apartment we we take made blades and everything we're on the first match everywhere right so we have no no chance of doing blade jobs but we thought it was cool so we practice and we get all bloody in the apartment i go running out and dive in the swimming pool and my neighbors would be freaking out that sat by the pool but anyway then after stan stan wasn't a learning process. Stan was just kind of the same parallel. He had just gotten released from pro ball. Anyway, so then Ricky Gibson was my first partner in the Pensacola Terry working for um, Lee, I mean, Lee Fields at the time. And Ricky was a veteran there. And he was with, you know, Ken Lucas and some really good workers. And I learned so much by watching Ricky because the tag team is where if you've got a partner that's better than you, he's going to elevate you. If you're the teacher or you're the one that's the, the, the best, you're probably not going to get elevated that much because it, you, you learn by watching your partner. And Ricky Gibson taught me so much. And then, of course, I came back after working there for maybe about a year. I came back to Tampa, and there was a booker at the time, Louis Tillette. And I don't know if it was that he just didn't like me or what, but I didn't like him for sure. I thought he sucked. And he set up a deal for me to go to Guatemala. And he gave me these big promises. Oh, man, you're going to love it there. You know, it's like a vacation and all this. And I'm going, I'm 20 years old. I don't need a vacation yet. You know, so... Anyway, I go there and Eddie pulled me aside before I go and he said, don't sell nothing. He said, they're little, little flyers all wearing masks. He said, they're going to try all these fancy moves. Just snatch them out of the air. He said, just beat the shit out of them. And he <laughs> said, you'll, you'll get over. 
So when Eddie tell me something, I, I really listen to what Eddie Graham had to say every time he tell me something. So, man, I just beat him to death in Guatemala. But <laughs> here was the, the rib was kind of on me. And the reason was, is I had five-week tour. You only wrestled twice a week, Saturday and Sunday. And they sent me there with a one-way ticket. And uh -oh. nobody, nobody picked me up at the airport. And I didn't speak a lick of Spanish, and nobody spoke any English. And when I landed, I'm walking around an airport with a big suitcase because I'm going to be there five weeks, and I'm looking. Nobody's there to pick me up, sat out front, got dark, pulled my suitcase, went in the back, laid on it crossways so nobody would steal the suitcase. And anyway, slept overnight in the airport, got up the next morning, nobody there to pick me up, nobody there. Finally, I panicked and just started screaming at the top of my lungs, does anybody speak English here? And a guy from a rent-a-car place came out and he said he spoke English. And I told him the story. I'm here to wrestle for Jose Azario, a luchador. I knew the word luchador. And he goes, sure. And he grabs the phone book, pulls, goes to Azari, picks up the phone, says, Azari, the wrestler's here. He says, when are you expecting him till tomorrow? Anyway, I was lucky because he picked me up, but I still, you know, I was unlucky because it, he just took me to a hotel and he couldn't speak a damn, hardly any English to me, just broken stuff. And he's telling me that they're going to come tomorrow and fit me for a mask. And I'm looking at him like, no, wait a minute. I don't wear a mask. I'm, this is my face. I'm wearing this. Anyway, so... I was in a hotel downtown Guatemala City, had one light bulb hanging from the center of the room. The toilet's right there by the bed. There's no separation. There's a sink there so that, you know, um, and then a shower over on the other side that was just in the open and it, water just goes everywhere. But then no air conditioner again. And he says, as long as you eat here, you no pay. So I'd eat all my meals in the hotel and they didn't speak any English, so we had a long time trying to figure out how to talk about food, but they didn't pick me up. They came the next day, and the guy fit me for a mask, and that's when I became the Black Angel, El Angro Negro in Guatemala. And it was on. Like Kurt Henning, one of my closest friends, he would say, the shit was on. Put the mask on Kurt and turn him loose. Well, here I am full of it and by the time I wrestled it was a Saturday it's outdoors in an outdoor arena if I was to compare it it was the same as a Nassau Coliseum in the Bahamas which is a real dump this was a real dump and it was an outdoor arena that the people on the outside would lob stuff over the wall trying to hit you in the ring and when I first got in the ring, it kind of dark. The lighting wasn't that good. And I kept seeing stuff flying through the air. And I thought it was like it was when I was a kid. If you want it right before dark, little bats will dive down out of the yes. air, right? And I'm going, oh, that's nothing. That's bats. And then all of a sudden, a bottle hits in the ring. It didn't break, but it just goes out the other side. Well, that's not a bat. And then, uh, you know, the guy that I was wrestling was from Mexico, I think, but he had a mask on, too. Everybody wore a mask. Even everybody in the audience had masks on. I mean, you know, it's like they, the, the first night I wrestled in the Coliseum, 
I had 30 people that had my mask on and I'm going, man, they're already selling black angel mask. But so here I got, I made it through. It didn't get hit with nothing. The next night was a, it was a new eye opener. You had to get your own cab. And then none of them had cab written on the top. It was just these guys riding around Guatemala city in these real old cars with a little flag hanging out the window. And I flagged the cab driver down. Now you got to negotiate well, you don't even speak the language or negotiate and their their monetary value was called quetzales which was one to one a dollar to a dollar quetzales anyway and say olympic auditorium <laughs> you know like i'm talking to a jap and he goes like look at me in olympic auditorium. yeah yeah luchador oh okay and then they go now here was the secret i'm riding along so i decide i'm gonna put the mask on so when i put the mask on it was an old Buick. There was always old cars, like 58s, 57s, whatever. And I'm in the back, like, you know, it's like your living room. And I put the mask on, and I come up, and the guy freaks out, looks in the back mirror, and he's gone. oh, no, 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 no. And he didn't want to take the heel to the matches. And there was already news that I was an American coming as a black angel to beat up the Azaris, which were national heroes. And so he gets me to the front and just dumps me. Now I get out thinking, well, this is going to be easy. And then all of a sudden people are running at me and they're not looked like friendly people. And I had to really all but to get into the back of the building. I got in everything and nobody in the dressing room spoke any English, got dressed. So I decided I'm going to go watch the matches. And I go up to the entrance to the matches and it's a huge arena. It was been in the Olympics at one time. They'd had the Olympics there. So it was like a hockey arena and had a, a 12 foot at least chain link fence that blocked the people in the cheap seats from the arena. And I'm thinking, man, I wonder what that cage is for all the way around all the people. Anyway, so these two Mexican heels liked me and they come up beside me and they're pointing at their eyes and they're going, watch, watch. And when they got introduced, they kicked open the doors and they ran out about 10 feet, slammed on the brakes and backpedaled. And it looked like rain. They were throwing rocks, oranges, anything, fruit, any kind of fruit they could carry in their pocket. Oh, rock. They unloaded. And then once the, the main thing slowed down, those two Mexicans hauled ass. Because once you got to ringside, there was people there and they stopped throwing from the cheap scenes. So if you could get to ringside, you're safe. And, and I got what they meant. So when they introduced Black Angel from North America, I kicked open the doors, ran out about 10 feet, backpedaled, and watched it rain, took off running. And they forgot to tell me that I had security, which were four little miniature boxers that looked like I had Sky Lolo and, you know, little cowboy whatever i had a bunch of midgets running along beside me and i'm going like well, what are you guys doing and i'm running to the ring right and they're going with the caddy with the caddy and i'm going well boy this better not get bad but they were actually <laughs> Olymp Olymp little olympic boxers man they knocked a lot of people out in my five weeks i was there but once i got to the ringside now i'm laughing i'm looking around like i outsmarted the audience and I started to get in the ring and I kept feeling things like somebody was shooting either a pea shooter at me or something because I was getting these stinging marks 
and feelings in my body. And I looked down and it was cigarettes. They were flicking cigarettes at me and it was oh, hitting geez. me in the back and the legs Ooh. and everything. Yikes. But it was just small little burns, you know. And I'm looking at the referee and uh, then I saw him coming and I snatched the referee and put him right in front of me like, here, you're a shield. Guess what? So anyway, I made it through. But Louis Tillet, and you know, if you if you read the book that I wrote, it tells about how my last week I had a major riot. They turned my cab over and they tried to drag me out of my cab and the army saved me, you know, and so I was really glad to get back home. And after being Ricky Gibson's partner and all that, my next move went to Atlanta, got up in there. Then I went to Carolinas and the Crockett's put me, I mean, uh, Ole Anderson put me with Tiger Conway Jr. And Tiger was a good worker and second generation guy. So I learned from him. So the whole thing boils around the tag team thing. And after I had been in singles in Florida for my my, my first part of my career and had to depend on myself to make money and draw and everything. The Bob Roop angle in the state of Florida was dynamic and it was Bob Roop was a great worker and he led yeah. me, but I was already mature because I'd been in Florida territory. I'd been to Guatemala and survived. I'd been to Pensacola. I'd been to Atlanta. I'd been to Charlotte. And now I come back and I worked big angles in Florida and they'd, they hung more belts on me than a Christmas tree. I mean, you know, I had brass knucks championships, beating up Missouri Mahler. I had, you know, um, tag team, um, North American champion, all kinds of belts, but they constantly were putting titles on me. I, th I think I've, they've quoted that I held the Florida title five times and all of that stuff is great for your history and all that stuff is monumental to fans. But in reality, it's just something that's part of it. As a matter of fact, so far as my, my own collection and my home and everything, I don't have any titles hanging on the wall. I mean, you know, we have no pictures of wrestling in this house, except for in the garage. I have a bunch of pictures over a workbench of some friends and stuff that were kind enough to write letters to me on their pictures and things. But, there's nothing that I kept that was monumental. I mean, you know, when I retired, I sold everything. Nothing was real to me. It was all part of what the business was. The business is a work. It's a work. And guys let their egos get out of place and they start believing they're really stars. And I've been surrounded by them for 44 years. And even to this day, you know, they'll go, man, they don't remember who I used to be. <laughs> well, who were you? <laughs> you know, you're another guy working. You're a soldier, you know. So that's the reality of it. But I don't know. The whole thing was about the tag team. The idea was I decided I was going to be a tag team specialist. And the reason was, was simple. You worked half as much. <laughs> when you're and when you were hurt, you didn't have to work at all. Your partner worked the whole match, and you got paid the same. Right. And you know it's as simple as that. So a lot of guys want to just be a single main event and everything. Well, the whole career can pass you by. And to me, it's like you know you get the right tag team partner, you're going to learn. You get the right t tag team partner, and they're going to take a notice and. 
you know, it just, that's kind of the way my career worked out. But I'm a big fan of tag teams because that when I got in the ring with somebody that I didn't like working with, I got a old tag. Here you go, Stan. You can have this guy. <laughs> I'm done here. So that's how the tag team thing came about. Speaking of which, um, I was kind of hoping to ask you about that. You, you mentioned Stan and, and obviously the fabulous ones and your your time with Stan, you know, lame one of the most popular and prominent tag teams of that era. Stan Lane, always one of my favorites. Obviously, he, he would go on, you know, upon you moving to other territories, he would go on, uh, you know, later on. And then his involvement with the Midnight Express and some of the other work that he's done. Uh, you know, so, so one of the arguably most prolific and popular tag team wrestlers of all time. And everybody that's talked about him, Jim Cornette on down, has talked about Stan Lane just had a spark and, and he had it. And I'm curious uh, just as a fan uh, of, of both of you, um, did you catch that? Like how, when you first met him or worked with him, was that like, did it take some chemistry or did you know, day one, second one, this guy's got it. And, and I'm, I'm good. Like, you know, he, like you said, he'll, he'll take care of me. Well, here's the real deal. I mean, you know, everybody else can, you know, embellish it. Everybody can sugarcoat it, but you're told what to do. It's as simple as that. You're told who your partner is. You're told what to do. And then you try to make the most of it. Because the next step is you get in a car and you ride to town seven nights a week. And depending on your territory, like that territory, we're probably encompassing 25 to 3,000 miles a week on the road. So you become as close to them as your family. The best thing is, is being able to get along and like the person that you're that with that much. And Stan was very easy to get along with. Stan would compliment me because I had more time in it and everything to, on decisions. And Stan was always kind of a nice person. And this ain't a nice business. When I started, I used to, and, and, and like I said in my book too, I, I said, it was like I was a minnow in a sea of sharks. Everybody, you have to understand the wrestling business as a whole picture. You're playing reality. You're playing king on the mountain. And everybody wants to be on the top of the mountain. So between backstabbing, politics, nepotism, everything in the world, you're fighting a battle. Not to mention... You're trying to stay liked. It's a personality game. The most important thing that I taught in wrestling was, is how are you accepted in that dressing room? Because everything else is meaningless. You can say, oh, I've got the greatest moves. I got the greatest body. I got the greatest this. I got the greatest that. I'm better than him. I'm better than them. It don't matter. Who likes you? Who likes you? Because if people don't like you, they can bury you. They can bury you in the ring. They can bury you in a car riding with other people. And your, your career can go from going forward to going in reverse. So Stan was very easy to deal with. Stan was complimentary. Stan would give me a lead. He would panic sometimes because that I'm I was pretty feisty. I'd already matured to a level at that point when him and I were partners that 
you know, I wasn't going to take anything because it, the whole thing about wrestling there, it was territorial days. If you don't like what's going on, you're only a U-Haul call away. <laughs> you just call a U-Haul and tell your family, hey, guess what? We're moving. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. I could pick up the phone and say, hey, Carolinas, I mean, you know, AWA, Bill Watts, anybody. And they were familiar with who I was by that level. And it's because of history of, 15 years by then so far as being in a business and working so and being a good soldier don't get me wrong I, and when somebody asked me if i do a job i do a job in a heartbeat and here's the thing nobody and then i had to explain this when i when i taught wrestling too is that nobody keeps score except for you you're the only one in this world that really gives a shit how many wins and losses you got. I mean, you know, so don't get caught up in, oh, man, I got to get beat, you know? Just go, sure, how long do we go and how strong do you want me to make them look? And, you know, it's like, it's not something you want to get in the habit of and you want to try to be above that for a full-time occupation. You want to grow up to be Barry Horowitz. In other words, you want to at least have some climbing grounds here and there, but not be labeled as, okay, this is an enhancement guy. Right. I don't want to be, a, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be somebody above that. So that's the battle. The battle's won several ways. The battle's won by your being a soldier and always doing what you're told, never complaining, giving a hundred percent when you work promoters. It, it, the word travels. Wrestling promoters and wrestlers are like women. They gossip about everything. You had to be on your guard when you rode with certain people just because you know that they would talk and tell everybody. It was like, tell the news, tell the paper, telegraph, tell a wrestler. Anyway, so, you know, it was a, it was a constant battle and you had to know who had the rep and who was kind of a stooge. So you had to protect yourself. So there's a psychological game. It was a physical game. And then it was a survival game. And then by the time I'd gotten to Tennessee, that was a story in itself going there because I said, I'd never go to that redneck territory. And next thing I know here, me and Kevin Sullivan come going into Tennessee together against each other. And, you know, I even told Jerry Jarrett when I first met him and he came to the Omni and kind of contracted me and Kevin off of an angle that we had going for Georgia wrestling. Jim Barnett traded me and Kevin for Tommy Rich. And I said, you know, I don't want to work for Jerry Jarrett. And they go, why? Have you ever worked for him? I said, no, but all I ever heard about that territory is you'll never get over Waller or Dundee. Because one's a booker for six months and the other's a booker for right. six months. And they're not going to let nobody get over them. Okay? Well, and when I told Jerry Jarrett that, he says, no, that's not true. He says, if you, if you get to a level that you put people in seats, you'll get over that. And I go, yeah, well, how can you get there if they're blocking you? And he looked at me and he knew that I'd been around too long to kind of like rope-a-dope. So he just said, well, I promise you that give, we'll give you every opportunity we can possibly give me. So I said, okay. So we went. Anyway, the rest was kind of history, but yeah, yeah. it was a 
total struggle because it, it was a total um, transformation of style. I went there as a NWA, Eastern, Southern Eastern kind of guy that all the territories pretty much that I worked was the same. Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, even, well, uh, Pensacola was a little bit of a cartoon, but the others were strict, strict kayfabe, strict work, strict wrestling, no, no razzmatazz, no, no funny business. The only funny people were the midgets when they came in once every year and everything else was kept on, you know, just a serious level. Now I go to Tennessee and it, Man, I was like a round peg sticking in a square hole. Here comes a stiff, because I was stiff. I like to hit you. I, t- I believe two moves in wrestling should always be real. The slap in the face and the chop to the chest. Right. If you, ca- if you can't take that for real, knowing you're getting it, then you got no business doing this. But I, I believed in laying it in. I believed in very snug work. And when I got to Tennessee, they were complaining. Oh, man. Wayne Ferris, who later became Honky Tonk Man, hated working with me. He used to ask me, Hey, Steve, allow you money or what? You're trying to kill me out there. And I said, Brother, I believe in what I do. I'm just making it real. I was taught to make the audience second guess. Is this real or not? Not to sit there and go, ah, this is bullshit. It was just a difference in education. Yeah. And Bill Bill Dundee, as a partner with him, smartened me up later and kind of said, listen, Steve, you know, you got to change, man. You're not fitting in here. You need to loosen up. You need to be more in the entertainment. I'm going, man, I don't want to do that cartoon stuff. Well, time as time has it, I started shaking my butt. I started doing midget high spots. I started doing stuff and I got over. And I'm thinking, man, I hope Eddie never visits this territory and sees me work <laughs> like this. But you know, you have to you have to understand and and, and even, I keep going to this and saying this because that I spent so much time and education in this business teaching. I tell guys, I said, you know, you can wrestle and think you have a great match in Tampa, you can't have that same match in New York and and get the same acceptance because every place is different. You have to go out and find out what your audience is enjoying and watching and what they like. You can't just give them your stuff and expect them to swallow it if that's not what they've been watching. And if you wrestled in WWF early days, guys that, you know, had been territorial guys, they could adapt to the the transitions, but the newer guys that never had territorial experience, they go to the WWE and they rehearse the match for four hours. It's a six minute match. When I was an agent, I'd go nuts. I'd say, okay, you guys, you got six minutes to put something together and I'll be back after cater. And I'd come back and they're still talking about, man, what are you talking about? It's a six minute match. You can't bat, you can't jam too much crap. Like, don't probably put five pounds of crap in a two-pound bag. Anyway, and then I'd listen to what they had, and they would be playing. It's like a tennis match. Yay, boo, yay, boo, yay, boo. By what they're giving me, laying it out, I go, man, you got to tell a story. And even though it's six minutes, the idea. And then it just slowly evolved into something else. And then sooner or later, by the time I got to FCW and was running that, I just accepted that 
no matter what the changes are, just go with it. Cause it's not your business. You're just working at it. Right. If you own the business, you have the right to tell people how to be. If you don't own it, you're working for somebody. And when my comparison would be to say, hey, say this is your first job and you're at McDonald's and you uh, to make hamburgers and you're, you like pickles and you put five pickles on that hamburger that's only supposed to have two. And the customer comes to the manager and says, oh man, I love your hamburgers. Now you got five pickles on them, they're great. Oh, yeah. And the guy goes out the door and he turns around and looks at you and says, who put five pickles on a hamburger? And you raise your hand thinking you're over like Rover. And he goes, you're fired. You're out. Beat it, Bozo. You don't make the ideas here. Beat it. And that's what the wrestling is. It says, you don't jump into it going, hey, I got a great idea. You know what? If you let me beat Hulk Hogan right in the middle, I'll be the new champ. And I'll, I'll give you some more ideas after that. You know, it's like, it's, it's surprising the things that I heard from people that wanted to be in the wrestling business and what they're ex, uh, really, uh, you know, thinking it was going to be like. So, yeah. S- Steve, this is the question I've been waiting to ask. This is the, my, my payoff. So we had Ken Patera on for the 100th episode, and he told us that uh, Bruno actually wanted to drop, drop the uh, WWF belt to him, but because of Vince Sr.'s connections uh, to Florida, that Billy Graham got the nod. And then um, when, we, uh, and that was just to, to uh, a transitional champion until a, a longer term baby face was being right. groomed. And now, um, again, he went to Florida for that. And there was two top choices were you and Bob Backlund. And uh, Besides your phenomenal record in in in, uh, in the re- in the the business, um, your dad was a genuine American war hero, and you met you mentioned before that you know wrestling is a business where if there is anything remotely real, they'll capitalize on it. But you had the look, you had the the in ring ability, and you had the, the 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 story to be the WWF flag bearer. Now ultimately, Backlund got the nod, but do you feel that? if it was you instead of Bob, that you could have achieved the same results. Oh yeah. I'm positive because if they force it, I mean, you know, Kevin Sullivan, you should, if you ever get a chance to interview Kevin Sullivan, you should ask him about this story because he knows that he actually heard them talking on the phone about me and everything. And so anytime they can make a star out of anybody. So I could have, obviously done whatever Bobby Backlund did. And I'm not saying I could have done it better or I could have done it, you know, more monumental or more memory or whatever. I could have just done the job and I could have, you know, filled the bill and I could have carried the ball as long as they wanted me to. But here's the deal. At that time, I was getting smoothed a little bit by Vince Sr. because he was flying me and Dusty up to to work the gardens um, every couple months, Dusty and I went to, to uh, Madison Square Gardens from Florida and would work because they had our tape going in up there on a bicycle through some small television stations. And I had a fear of big cities. I mean, you know, I really had no motivation to work that territory because it, when you're wrestling seven nights a week, and you're trying to make these towns with traffic and accidents and things like that happen and delay you. The last thing you need to do is be worried about how to find the damn building. 
And right. to me, Madison Square Gardens was a wake-up call of why I didn't want to work that territory because, it, you know, they talked about Boston Gardens, they talked about Philly, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, where do you get off on the interstate and ask somebody, hey, how do I get to the garden? You know, in Florida, Georgia, Carolinas, Tennessee, everywhere, you could pull off of pretty much any interstate coming into any city if you'd never been there before and say, do you know where they have wrestling tonight? And usually somebody would <laughs> give you an idea which way to go. Well, you don't get that kind of response in New York. You no. have, <laughs> Later That's on, when not. I was an agent, I, I can remember as an agent being with Fit Finley and we'd pull off and ask the guy at the toll plaza, hey, man, do you know how to get to the spectrum? Hey, asshole, buy a map. You know, that's, that's the kind of answer you got. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, oh, it's that way. Or I don't speak English, you know. So right. I had a fear, to be honest with you, going there. And the story goes, and this is, I've heard it three different ways. Because it, all it was was a hearsay. And Eddie's dead. Vince Sr.'s dead. So who knows what the truth is? Dusty's dead. You know, Eddie's dead. Everybody's dead. But... I heard it that first it was between me and Bobby because we were tag team partners. Eddie had put Bobby with me as a tag team because I'd been partners with Mike. I'd been, you know, I'd had quite a run with a lot of guys. And so Bobby was very mechanical. He was kind of like, I call it robotish, like Lex Luger and guys that, you know, just seemed like they're, they didn't have fluid motion to their body. And he wasn't, you know, very comfortable in front of people. And so they put him with me and I helped loosen him up. Okay, yeah, I just, I think it was a way to get him comfortable in front of people and see, you know, watch somebody else work with a different, little bit of different style. I mean, Minnesota guys were pretty good workers back then, but they were still kind of like characteristic of nationalities like New York. And they had a lot of old timers that were more stiff, just kind of brawlers and they were wrestlers. And so it was just an ad, you know, adapting Bobby to the, that style of the NWA. And so when Vince senior um, hooked me up with um, wanting me to create a bridge between him and new Japan pro wrestling and new Japan with Anoki. Um, Fujinami, they wanted me to take a title to Fujinami and drop it to him in Sapporo and bridge the gap between them. And so Vince, um, he sent me a belt in the mail, <laughs> brand new belt. Anyway, and that was like, I the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. And I took it to Japan. It was funny when I went and got there because I'd been to Japan a few times and First thing they do when you're a champion, I mean, those reporters and news people and the wrestling magazines, they take you in there and start drilling you. Oh, you champion. Who'd you beat? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Vince sent this to me in the mail. I couldn't say that. The whole thing was a mind game. You know, it's like I had to double talk them. And I'd already, you know, gotten pretty good at double talking from being in the business a little bit. But oh, it's none of your business who I beat. I might beat you next, you know, and then, okay, on the next question then. I mean, you know, you had to outsmart them. But anyway, when I, when I did that, I had done him a favor. And then I, then I was told when I came home, I was going to start New York when I got back. That's what Eddie told me when I left for Japan. 
When I got back, Dusty and Eddie pulled me into the sportorium and said, hey, kid, listen, um, we've talked Vince out of taking you. We, we gave him Bobby instead of you, and we want you to stay here. You're one of our only white meat baby faces here. And when I say that, you have to understand there was like Omar Negro, Cyclone Negro, Port Chop Cash, Bo, or not Bobo Brazil, um, Freight Train, whatever. And, you know, there was several black guys, several Spanish guys and everything. And so I was kind of that all-American pie, still had kind of that hero from my dad thing, you know, all-American flag-waving boy. And so Eddie's going... Yeah, we're gonna keep you here, and we're gonna we're gonna hang every title we got on you here. <laughs> and that's when they, you know, even the brass knucks champ <laughs> started laughing about those. But of course, I was tag team champions with Mike at the time. After that, and anyway, they really kind of like sugarcoated it, but it was really what I wanted. I didn't want to go, and right. so the whole story evolves around everybody thinking there would be resentment and hate and all of that between me and what I missed and all. Absolutely not. You know, you win some, you lose some. Sometimes you get over, sometimes you don't. But if you're in the wrestling business and you're really in the wrestling business your whole life and it's a passion in your life, you accept whatever you get. And because it's bottom line is you don't have a choice. It's like what you were saying about, you know, being uh, partners with Stan. Did you like him? It didn't matter if I liked him. It, it meant this is an opportunity. Make it work no matter what. Unless the guy's a child pedophile or somebody that's a freak oh, gee, that yeah. I'm about to ride, yeah, ride with every night or, or hate to say this, a gay guy. That'd be, that would have been the straw that broke the camel's back. I ain't going to be his partner. I mean, that's pretty offensive nowadays, but in the 80s, it wasn't, you know, so anyway. Yeah, different world be, back then. I, I, yeah, yeah, I got to be careful because of that. I'm 72 years old, and I've got two bosses. Number one, my boss is God, and I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I'm, I've surrendered my life. Number two is my wife. Other than that, I'm a loose cannon. I'm going <laughs> to say things. Unfiltered. Right. Yeah, I, you're exactly right. But I'm going to speak from my heart. And one thing I really take pride in is the truth. Tell the truth, because uh, you I don't can... have to. Pr you don't have to practice that truth, and you don't have to remember what you said right. on the podcast right. before. You know what I mean? The it truth is the truth. And and if you're answering to God and Jesus Christ. That's pretty serious. So that's where I and lightning capital of the world is Tampa, Florida. Yes, it so is. So while I'm talking to you, if I start thinking of a lie, I'm looking through these skylights in my office and something's going to come flashing down and knock me right out of this chair. So, you know, those are the only partner situations I wasn't really. I mean, you know, actually working against gay guys and stuff like that, too, was very rare back in those days and you know it happened but it just wasn't a topic back in our day right. i get it well steve i mean this hour just flew by and I, there's so much more we want to talk about we'll definitely benny will coordinate having you back on the show i'd love to chance to talk to you again this is great stuff you you 
are you're quite in order. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that your stories very detailed, but very flowing. It's it's you're a good order of telling the stories. They were great stories. I appreciate absolutely sharing them with us. Well, I, I appreciate you guys having me on and you know, real reality is, is the only reason I do these things is, is now out of retirement is because that writing a book was something that I never thought I would do to be honest with you. Now, my dad wrote a book, but my dad had, he's a two-time prisoner of war. Right. He was a prisoner of war in Germany at age 19. And then he lived through all of the military and two wars. And he wrote a book, but my dad wrote a book. And after it was out, you know, I had the opportunity to put it in front of producers and stuff, because what a story his life was. I mean, you know, even the dates, he was shot down 9-11 in 1941 for the World War II. He, he, was, he, was, he died three days before Memorial Day and was buried on Memorial Day at Cape Canaveral. I mean, you know, his, his, all of his issues and all of his things that he went through and being held seven years and seven months in a Vietnamese prison camp, being tortured relentlessly, yeah. he survived. So when he wrote a book, it made sense. But his book was so humble that it's it's almost too slow to kind of bring a movie out of it. I told him if I'd have wrote that book, you'd have been Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, you know, I would have jazzed that up and made the emotion come out. So when they said, you need to write a book, you need to write a book. And I said, who's going to read my book? I was just a soldier in a wrestling battle for my whole life. That's as simple as it was. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't a standout that everybody I'm on the tip of everybody's tongue when they mention wrestling. I'm just another face that passed through. I had quite a few accomplishments, but it's not more than anybody else. It's not less, but at the same time, I'm an average guy. So why write a book? And they said, well, because you can tell stories. You can tell stories, and you have so many, and I do. When you mentioned Ken Patera's name, the first thing came as I was there the night he got arrested. Me and Stan were were in Waukesaw with Ken and Saido and Black Jack Mulligan on a little private plane, and we were in the hotel. As a matter of fact, when we got back to the hotel after the matches, we ran down the hill behind the hotel, left our bags at the front desk and ran down the hill and got something from McDonald's right before they closed. And then here come Ken coming down the hill and they were locking the door and we're laughing and going, hey, they're closed. And he's saying, hey, they'll open for me. <laughs> that, was, that was funny later the next day because I said that on the plane when we got on. I said, well, they opened for you. Anyway, but throw a rock through it and fight all the cops in the neighborhood. But anyway, so I always, I always tell this like that in writing the book, I have so many stories, but my career was so long. I couldn't do it in one book. Cause I wrote the first book goes from the beginning and all the beginnings of territorials and a lot of stories of guys and ribs I pulled and things happened. And then, then, it gets to 1987 is kind of the breakup. It's right after the fab separate. And I start going, then I got a whole nother career of those. 
with owning PWF with Gordon and Dusty and Mike Graham. We tried to start wrestling in Florida after the Crockett's gave it up. I developed guys and I had to teach guys then. And so I taught Diamond Dallas Page. I taught Dennis Knight. I taught Mike Awesome. I taught um, Dustin Rhodes. I taught about 10 guys that ended up spending their whole careers in the wrestling business. But I had to flash teach guys to run that territory and then it caved in and then next thing I know I'm I'm working three jobs trying to support my family because there's no it's a dead end in wrestling I didn't have any opportunities and now I'm mowing lawns and working at UPS without Perez unloading tractor trailers and running a wrestling school at night to feed my family and then boom out of nowhere on April 1st of all days John Lerner and I just called me said hey you want to be an agent and I started laughing and said, my favorite day, man. I'm the, one of the top ribbers in the wrestling business, and you ain't going to get me on April 1st. And he goes, I didn't even know it was April 1st. I said, call me back tomorrow and offer me the job. And he did. And, of course, <laughs> I took it. I took it. But my whole life is kind of, it has ups and downs, nothing dramatic. But at the same time, it has you know, good things to hear. And if somebody that reads about wrestling or, or interested in wrestling, it enlightens them on a lot of different things. I don't trash people in my book and I don't run down promoters. I mean, you know, I don't shine on a few. I mean, you know, I got one complaint that I was a little hard on some old timers, but it was just Bunk Harris. I had to they asked me who was the worst match I ever had. And I just said, Bunk Harris in the Carolina. Anyway, so, but at the same time, I could really throw, you know, major poison darts at a lot of people, but why? Why? Who, what is that game? And who's it for? I mean, you know, you don't think I know things that people don't know that would like to know? Of course I do. Do you think that there's some things that I could bury people with? Absolutely. But there's, you know, there's no benefit and there's no satisfaction. So I write a pretty level book and try to keep it afloat and something that keeps you interested and leads you to the next one. So if anybody gets the opportunity to buy the book, it's sold on Amazon only, uh, Kern Chronicles. And anyway, it's volume one. Volume two is going to be coming out after the first of the year so. It's nice. a little more. It's a little more detrimental then because now I'm talking about WWF, WWE, uh, 15 years working for Vince and all aspects, and you know being Skinner, which was a blast. Most fun I had in the wrestling business was Skinner. Anyway, but doing those kind of things and traveling the world and all that, but. Anyway, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I, I go on podcasts. I want to talk about the wrestling business. I mean, you know, I want to, you know, as long as I'm still sane, I mean, you know, I, I, I look around and I have fears. I mean, you know, when I saw Harley and one of the last times I saw Harley, I was at an autograph convention and, you know, I walked up to him, hey, Harley, and I'd gone hour broadways with him when he was NWA World Heavyweight Champion. And I, I actually was called by him to come down and beat somebody up in Atlanta one time wanted to be a wrestler because that he admired what Eddie had done. I mean, you know, we had a relationship and he was in 
Never Never Land. He had no clue to who I was. He's looking at me like, do I know you? And I'm going, you know, it was sad. So I I keep telling my wife, I've been married 43 years. I've got a fantastic wife. I've got an awesome family. I've got five of the most beautiful grandkids in the world. And I'm educating them. Every time that they leave me alone with my grandchildren, I mean, both of my kids will go, okay, they call me Big Daddy. They'll say, okay, Big Daddy, careful what you say. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> I mean, I love my family. I, I love God and Jesus, and I'm just at peace. So, you know, if you get an opportunity and you want to talk again, we can go another hour. Either. To another Broadway. Another Broadway. Yes, yep. yes. Yes, sir. They don't even know what Broadway Sounds means. Great. If you want to, if you go talk to a young wrestler right now that thinks they're smart, even a top star WWE, just say, "Hey, you ever done any Broadways?" And they'll look at you like you're speaking another language. Right. Like, what's, yep. a, what's a Broadway? <laughs> well, how many bro- how many one hour draws are there now? So anyway, but thank you yeah. guys. Thanks hey. for taking the time. Thanks for calling me. And I wish the Skype thing would. Maybe next time. Yeah, but we'll, maybe yeah. next time. Yeah, for, uh, I still look pretty cool. <laughs> you do. Uh, I, for for those um, in the audio, you know, on our podcast side, before we got to recording, we had a video connection. Um, the the shirt you were wearing that was a Skinner shirt that we that you were wearing yep. before we had to disconnect. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Is that is that for sale anywhere? Yeah, it's with the a. It's with that. Um, ProWrestlingTees.com. Right. I have a I have a store with them. They call it a store, and it's a cool deal because you know everybody comes with you from so many opportunities. I've got action figures out the Yang Yang, wanting me to do old, you know, retro figures. And Greg Gagne signed me to a thing to do some, and I mean you know the fabulous ones to even Steve Gator Kern and all of that. But the the t-shirt thing is a deal they set up with the pro wrestling tees. And I think it's mostly AEW stuff, but it has a store and I have Skinner stuff on there. I have nice. a couple of t-shirts. I have some decals and stickers that they sell. And then I have fabulous one stuff too. And so, you know, they give you an opportunity to not have to deal with it. I don't like dealing with merchandise. It's like when I do conventions and stuff, when they try to contract me, they'll say, well, what is your fee? And I said, you sell whatever you want. I get a flat fee. I'm not bringing pictures and T-shirts and hats and bumper stickers with me. I'm coming, showing up with a pen in my hand, and that's it. So I'm a, I'm a multi-character. I'm the Lon Chaney Jr. of wrestling. <laughs> I, got, I got five different characters, and whichever one you like, you sell a bunch of pictures. Sure. Just don't make me, I, I just don't even think about asking me to be doink at the thing, okay? Because if that ain't happening, that was a go. curse. <laughs> All right, like, guys, thanks. Absolutely, thank you so much, sir. All right, see ya. Have a good night, Steve. You guys too. Well, like like he said, the uh, the book is called The Kern Chronicles, Volume 1, The Fabulous Wrestling Life of Steve Kern, available on Amazon. 
Uh, highly recommended. The foreword for the book is actually written by CM Punk. So, uh, you know, for, for our modern fans out there who might have missed some of the current connection, Punk does a great job laying it out for you. And like he said, Steve Kern has a page on ProWrestlingTees.com. Benny, 150, just like 100. This, uh, you know, just kept going. Uh, and I mean that in a good way. That This could have been a three-hour show, and I don't think we got through half the list of questions we wanted Absolutely. to get to. So, I mean, 150 episodes, Benny. Uh, genuinely, uh, this has been great doing this with you, and uh, here's to 150 more. Um, uh, obviously, Dan and Benny, we can be listened to anywhere podcasts are found. Thanks again to our support we get from our friends on YouTube at, <clears throat> excuse me, Monty and the Pharaoh. So, for the player who uh, is current, trivia champion after your your horrible 30 yeah reigning champion. yeah i mean you you only had to steal my answers and turn it was, my it was, a off to beat me I, it, point, it but... was like foot on the rope kind of thing you know the schoolboy with the two feet on the rope right yeah after after someone else's music played and i turned around right exactly <laughs> it's great stuff so uh, again for the playa benny scala i'm dan spaciano episode 150 here's to 150 more thank you good night everyone and we will see you next time we're in the ring